Welcome to this podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. It publishes original research and topical reviews on basic and clinical aspects of gastrointestinal sensation and motility, as well as brain-gut interactions. Okay. So welcome everyone to this month's podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. My name's Adam Farmer and I'm a gastroenterologist at the Wingate Institute in London. This month it's my real great pleasure to welcome Professor Prakash Gowali. Uh, Prakash is a professor of medicine at the Washington University in St. Louis and his main academic interests concern GI motility, uh, acid peptic disorders including gastroesophageal reflux disease and functional bowel disorders. And he and his group this month have uh, published a paper entitled GERD Phenotypes from pH Impedance Monitoring Predict Outcome on Prospective Evaluation. So Prakash, many thanks for joining us on the podcast and congratulations to you and your co-authors on the paper. So if I could just start and ask, could you just provide some background to the current management and investigation of uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease? Thank you, Adam, and thank you for asking me to participate in this podcast. Um, regarding um, current management of reflux disease, there are generally two main avenues. The, the first is medical management, which utilizes acid suppression. This reduces acidity in gas, gastric secretions and therefore reduces the noxious nature of the refluxate. This approach is effective in the vast majority of GERD patients. But acid suppression does not really reduce frequency of reflux events. And sometimes we add a reflux reducer, like baclofen, to this regimen. However, efforts to develop a baclofen analog specifically for reflux disease has not been very successful. Now, the second avenue is some form of uh, surgical or invasive management, if you, if you please. Um, this is typically reserved for well-characterized reflux in the setting of some kind of structural disruption at the gastroesophageal junction, although it could be an option in any patient with well-characterized reflux. There are a few newer uh, options, such as implantation of a magnetic bracelet at the gastroesophageal junction to keep this area closed. There are also endoscopic incisionless fundoplication. Um, radiofrequency treatment of the esophagogastric junction has been around for a little while. And uh, the new kid in the block is electric pulse stimulation of the lower esophageal sphincter, which is being studied in different parts of the world. Now, regarding investigation, this is typically undertaken if seemingly adequate medical treatment fails to resolve GERD symptoms, or if alarm symptoms are present that require inspection and biopsy of the esophagus, or if surgical or invasive management is planned. Now, endoscopy is the usual starting point for this, and in this setting, biopsies are typically taken from the esophagus to rule out conditions like eosinophilic esophagitis. Beyond endoscopy, some form of ambulatory reflux monitoring helps rule in or rule out reflux disease in these settings where treatment uh, has not resolved symptoms. There are other adjunctive tests, including manometry, barium studies, and gastric emptying study, which may further help refine the mechanism of foregut symptoms. So how does ambulatory reflux monitoring uh, aid clinicians in their diagnosis? So in patients with unproven GERD, ambulatory reflux monitoring performed 
off anti-secretory therapy helps establish the reflux burden in the esophagus. The most straightforward evidence for reflux would be a significant elevation in esophageal acid exposure times. By the same token, the most straightforward evidence against reflux would be very low acid exposure times. Um, in between these significant elevations and low acid exposure time, there is a murky area where other clinical information may need to be added to the mix, like clinical information, uh, patient symptom information, symptom relief information, and so on. Now, if impedance is added to reflux monitoring, numbers of reflux events can be accurately measured. And thresholds of normal have also been established for these numbers. Finally, symptoms occurring within two minutes following a reflux episode are considered associated with the reflux event, and this can be further quantified with measures of symptom reflux association. So could you just explain the parameters of acid exposure time and, and symptom association uh, probability? Now, acid exposure time consists of the percent time the esophageal pH at a level 5 centimeters above the lower esophageal uh, sphincter uh, is below 4.0 during the ambulatory pH study. Now, acid exposure time can be calculated for the total period of the study, but uh, it can also be differentially measured for upright and supine positions, which may have relevance in how we recommend uh, measures and uh, treatments for patients. Um, in general, total acid exposure time, or AET, below 4% are definitively uh, normal, and values above 6% or so are definitively abnormal. The values in between, so between 4 and 6 percent, constitutes a gray area where uh, other information uh, needs to be included in the decision-making like I initially discussed. Um, talking about symptom association probability, this takes into account the numbers of reflux episodes, the numbers of symptom events reported by the patients, and the numbers of reflux ep episodes associated with the symptom events that is occurring within two minutes um, of, the of the reflux event. The calculation also takes into account times when there are no symptoms and no reflux episodes. Now, all these metrics are uh, included in a uh, statistical test, uh, the Fisher's exact test, and a likelihood that symptoms and reflux events occurred together just by chance is calculated in the form of a p-value. So when the p-value is less than 0.05, the likelihood of chance association is less than 5%, and this corresponds to an SAP of 95%. So anything above an SAP of 95% is considered significant. So using these two parameters of acid exposure time and uh, symptom association probability, can we begin to categorize patients uh, based on these values in terms of the evidence of their reflux disease? Uh, yes, we can. And so when um, acid exposure time is abnormal and a symptom association probability is positive, reflux evidence can be considered to be the strongest, where you are beginning to try and explain a patient's symptoms on the basis of abnormal AET. Now, even without a positive symptom association probability, 
an abnormal AT would indicate good evidence for reflux, uh, especially if it's, if it's towards the higher end. Obviously, if AT is normal and SAP is negative, reflux evidence would be absent. Finally, one can have a normal AT but a positive SAP. This condition is now termed reflux hypersensitivity and could, include, uh, it could indicate a hypersensitive or a hypervigilant esophagus in the setting of normal or physiologic esophageal acid exposure. So moving on to your, your study, what were the key aims of your study as you embarked, uh, embarked on it? Well, we had previously determined that AET and a positive SAP were independently predictive of GERD outcomes. Um, we had also previously reported that GERD populations could be stratified into different phenotypes using AAT and SAP. So for the present study, we wanted to evaluate if symptomatic outcomes varied if the strength of reflux evidence was stratified into the four phenotypes we just discussed. We wanted to determine if treatment outcome was different between these phenotypes. And what was your study population and what, what methods did you use in your study? We, we evaluated outcomes in a cohort of 187 patients who underwent pH impedance testing for persistent reflux symptoms despite um, acid suppressive therapy, of which about half were tested off anti therapy. We stratified these patients into the four um, GERD phenotypes using AAT and SAP. And then we evaluated their symptomatic outcomes. So all patients filled out symptom questionnaires when they came for their pH and impedance study that assessed their dominant symptom, both in terms of severity and frequency on five-point Likert scales, and we generated a dominant symptom score from that information. We also assessed their global symptom score on a 100-millimeter visual analog scale at that time. Now, these patients were managed by their own physicians, and after a period of time, they were contacted by my associate, Dr. Amit Patel, and the same symptom questionnaire was repeated. This was done after a mean of about three years to determine symptom outcome. The patients were also asked what management approach had been employed for their reflux management. Now, we've eventually applied these, uh, these two reflux burden, or symptom burden outcome measures to the four GERD phenotypes to determine their outcome. Finally, we compared proportions of the phenotypes to two previous institutional cohorts with pH-only data to determine differences between pH-only and pH impedance testing in the actual proportions of the four phenotypes that we studied. So what were your key results uh, that you found in the study? Uh, the most significant was uh, in the cohort that we tested off PPI, where uh, approximately 20% each had strong and good reflux evidence, and 25% had equivocal or no reflux evidence, and 30% had reflux hypersensitivity. Now, um, when pH impedance testing was performed on PPI, as would be expected, about half had no reflux evidence, and abnormal acid exposure time was only seen in about a quarter of patients, all told. Regardless of whether testing was performed off or on PPI therapy, patients with strong reflux evidence had the highest symptom burden at baseline and demonstrated the best improvement in these symptom burden metrics with therapy. 
and their outcomes were significantly different compared to patients with uh, equivocal uh, reflux evidence and no reflux evidence. Now, the other part of our findings relates to the proportions of reflux hypersensitivity. Uh, when we compared our proportions to historical cohorts, the proportions of reflux hypersensitivity picked up with pH monitoring alone, the so-called acid sensitivity, was significantly lower than the proportion of reflux hypersensitivity that we could pick up using pH impedance testing. Uh, this uh, establishes the value of the impedance portion of the testing in um, identifying reflux events and also establishes that patients can be sensitive to reflux events regardless of the pH of the refluxate. And was there any differences in putative factors uh, suggested to influence reflux disease such as obesity or smoking status, uh, for example? So for this study, we did not assess uh, body mass index or smoking status. We did assess typical symptoms versus atypical symptoms. And the symptom burden was much higher for typical symptoms across the phenotypes when testing was performed off PPI in contrast to atypical symptoms. Uh, we assessed gender and race, and there were no differences across the phenotypes related to gender or race. And what do you think the limitations are of, the, of your study? I think the biggest limitation was that we did not influence management of the patients. So we did not have a protocol for management. We did not dictate how they were to be treated. The person ordering the pH study dictated what their management was going to be, whether they were going to be treated with maximal or submaximal PPI therapy or with anti-reflux surgery. Um, even though this is a limitation, we also feel that this is a strength of the study in some ways in that it establishes a real-world management setting. Now, there are other limitations. Uh, we could not confirm compliance to PPI therapy before or after management, and we could not extract the influence of superimposed functional disorders on symptom reporting or symptom burden. We could not assess the effects of neuromodulators that some of the patients were on, uh, both for uh, affective disorders and for other functional disorders. So those were some of the limitations uh, that we had to contend with. But I agree. I think uh, that that real-world data is, is so useful, um, and I think it's a strength rather than a, rather than a limitation. So what do you think are the, are the real take-home messages for, for practicing clinicians from your study? I, I think the key message is that there are phenotypes within the broad realm of reflux disease, um, and determining these phenotypes uh, of, of strong, or phenotypes with strong reflux evidence can be clinically useful in predicting response to treatment of reflux. So the patients at the strong end with elevated acid exposure time and symptom association tend to do better. Um, and this can be used to not just uh, plan management, but also to counsel uh, patients. Now, uh, one caveat of this is that the phenotype, uh, phenotyping of this sort seems to work best for typical reflux symptoms, and using pH impedance monitoring performed off PPI um, and in patients with unproven GERD. So the concept of uh, stratifying testing and planning management uh, based on whether patients have unproven or proven GERD also needs to be factored into the decision making. And just 
a little bit of future gazing, if I may. Where, where do you think the knowledge gaps lie in the field, and, and how do we go about uh, resolving these as, as, as the field progresses? I, I think one of the biggest issues with uh, ambulatory reflux monitoring in the present day is that it only provides a cross-sectional assessment of reflux burden on one day in assessing a disease that lasts a patient's lifetime. So there is important day-to-day -day variation in reflux burden that may impact these 24-hour ambulatory pH or pH impedance results. And this is only partly and rather incompletely addressed by wireless pH monitoring over multiple days. Now the future of this could be assessing um, mucosal integrity or using uh, measures such as baseline mucosal impedance which could potentially provide a longitudinal measure of uh, esophageal mucosal integrity or reflux induced changes. Now, there are some uh, initial studies looking at this um, both in terms of looking at the nighttime basal mucosal uh, impedance patterns on pH impedance studies but also using a special probe at endoscopy that touches the mucosa to assess mucosal impedance. These techniques are in their infancy and obviously more research needs to be performed, to I be agree. done. And I agree, I think it's a, an exciting time in, in terms of those uh, developing technologies. So with that, I'd like to thank you and your co-authors for a really excellent uh, and useful clinical paper and also assisting in this month's podcast. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in next month and I look forward to welcoming you again on another instalment of the podcast then. Further information about this paper can be found on the journal website. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you to next month's edition.